Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. This panel discussion was recorded live at our Device Talks Boston show on July 15, 2014. It features serial entrepreneur Carmichael Roberts, Insulate CEO Dwayne DeSisto, Biome CEO Charles Cargnan. The panel is moderated by Mass Device's Brad Periello. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. I wanted to start with you here. Okay. With Insulet, you're at the forefront of treating one of the most pressing chronic conditions, diabetes. As a relatively small player in the same space with giants like Medtronic, Johnson & Johnson, how do you focus on staying viable and aggressive on that playing field? So, you know, it's a great question. You know, it's the question we asked ourselves 13 years ago when we kind of got into the space. And, and it was pretty interesting. If you go back and you look at the technology that Medtronic had, I wish they only had 75 people still because we kicked their ass, but, but they got a lot more now. But um, if, if you look at the kind of technology they had, they really didn't innovate all that much. What they did is they had a product. Um, they had a need. It's a very, as we all know, diabetes, if not controlled, eventually will bankrupt, forget the United States, will probably bankrupt the entire world at the rate it's going. And, and so they, they've kind of made tweaks to their product line. When we kind of came in, if you look at a traditional insulin pump, you, you couldn't help but scratch your head and said, you know, with all the stuff that's going on, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And so we went through this process. Um, you know, we created a product that's disposable, it wears on your body, it's completely discreet for diabetes patients. And I think this, we had two real big advantages. Obviously, they have more resources. We were completely and totally focused. In the time I've been with Insulet now, 13 years, I'm on my now fifth CEO of their diabetes division. So, so we got to be doing something right. But, but it's a way station in a lot of these big companies. As big as this space is, I think the advantage all small companies have with an incredible amount of focus, you're a hell of a lot more efficient than them. You know, we were able to create, create something that they really, they, they, they couldn't even dream of it. I mean, they spent a lot of time telling the world we were going to fail. They went out, you know, we had five salespeople, so they went out to the rest of the country, told people this was the size of a cantaloupe that you were going to put on your body. You know, and, and it was all the typical stuff that a big company can do because they have resources. They just kept pounding away, pounding away, pounding away. But, you know, we stayed at it. We were persistent about it. We created a product that we believe is by far best in the class. And, you know, today, you know, we're pushing $300 million in revenue. We've passed J&J because J&J was really focused on the strip business not really on the pump business. So we're probably now, you know, number two with a bullet here, and, and we're, uh, we're chasing down number one. So. so speaking of Medtronic, obviously probably the biggest acquisition ever in, in medical device space anyway, uh, it seems like there's a lot of consolidation going on among the majors. Can small cap companies like yours step up and fill that need for innovation in today's climate? I think that's, uh, once again, great question. You know, the good news for us is they will be busy integrating this this for a while here. Um, I, I think from our standpoint, it, it's it's pretty simple. There's a lot of little companies out there. There's, you know, uh, you know, you're here on the venture side. I mean, funding's dried up for a lot of these. There's a lot of kind of cool technology. I think we are now of a size that we can start taking advantage of that. I, I also think... You know, the, the other advantage that we have in the space is we can stay ahead. I mean, we are tied in with the reimbursement people. We're really trying to find ways to make this all work financially. And if you look at the infrastructure that Medtronic has to support that business, it's going to be really tough 
for, really tough for them to really kind of change. And, and so, you know, the, the balance as a company our size is how to be entrepreneurial, but how then not to turn into complete and total chaos. So, so you know, I think right now we're kind of at a, you know, in, in, in kind of people terms, we're a teenager in, in the growth of this business. I would like to say they're old and tired and they're doing the same old things here. So, so do I think we do it? Yeah, absolutely. Is it going to be easy? No, I, I think nothing's going to be easy with this new kind of health care, right? I mean, we're going to accountable care. It's evidence-based medicine, everything that's going on now in this space. So that's a whole new, you know, it's no more fee-for-service, no more any of that. So, so I, I think the real key is you have to develop products that drive clinical results which result in taking costs out of the healthcare system. And, you know, that's our primary focus in everything we're doing. So the answer is yes. There's a lot of little companies that get it because we have no choice. If you don't get it, you'll be out of business if if you're not paying attention to that. Carmichael, I'd like to bring you in here on this because you've founded, I would ask you to list them all, but we'd still be here tomorrow morning. (laughs) From your perspective as someone who's been involved in so many early-stage ventures, what's your take on that question of how do these small, entrepreneurial-driven companies survive in a climate that's just driven by cost control? I'll start by answering and saying something that, I love the slides that you put up earlier, Manny, with the, uh, the real plight of the entrepreneur with the S on the front and for everybody in this audience, the S on the back. Um, I, I, the reality is you're always going to have challenges at, uh, at any you know, point in time in the duration of the business, whether, it's when you, whether you're starting something, and you know that that challenge of cost control or or something unique in regulatory change or another big challenge we have in this area is that there's a whole world that thinks medical device is not an interesting area for investment as compared to the next app on a, on you know on the iPhone, and so you're competing against stuff completely outside. Um, you know my 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 biggest uh, thing is I, I actually think there's an opportunity when you have those kind of challenges that are sitting there for the great entrepreneurs to figure out exactly how they can take that disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. So I, I love the statement of you know, ther- you know, therapy that also at the same time takes cost out of the system, right? To, to design something that upfront you know, has that criteria, I think from there, if you, if you put that up, up front and let the entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur is aware of that, um, the early stage companies from day one are sort of uh, Designed with that in mind, and then I think you don't have the problem as, as much of a problem. Chuck, turning to you, and you are entering, I think, your second or third week at, at Biome, <laughs> incredibly innovative uh, prosthetics company. What was it that excited you about the opportunity there that, that drew you to, to accept that role? Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was really about the mission of the company. Um, you know, I was at nine point; we were doing great. We had really charged hard to get a, you know, develop a product very quickly. And then I had the opportunity at Biome, a company that's been around for a few years, but has a truly innovative way to give mobility back to patients who have lost mobility for various reasons, diabetes being a significant, uh, you know, contributor to that. And so it was a chance to come in and say, hey, this is a great company with a great product. It's had a few challenges. Um, but I think that they're all things that, that with my experience and background, particularly in, in reimbursement, et cetera, to really come in and help make a difference at that company. It's a great team that's there. Um, we just need to come in and kind of 
refocus and, and really focus back on the patient. And I think part of it is that the company lost its focus on the patient. And it's something that I've come in in a matter of two and a half weeks, really refocused on. I was in the field last week, my week number two. I'm heading to the field tomorrow. I'll be back out there next week. And people are a little bit shocked. It's like, uh-oh, this new CEO is already in the field. They don't know what to make of it. Um, they got to spend time with me. You know, and I'm not, I told them, I'm not trying to check up to make sure that you're busy. I really want to meet the patients. I want to meet the prostatists that we work with and understand that. And already after one visit to the field, I have my own stories of seeing just how, and I showed some people a video earlier tonight of a patient that we put the ankle on last Thursday, and he had, was walking really on what's the next best thing that's out there. Um, and he put this on them, and he was just walking so fast, and the prosthetists were shocked to see this guy walking so quickly. We went outside, and he wanted to walk down the block, and we ended up walking a mile, which for most of us here probably doesn't seem like a lot, but for somebody with a prosthetic leg, walking a mile is a huge effort, and this guy did it in 45 minutes and would have kept going except that we had to leave, and, um, and, and so that was really exciting for me, and it reminded me why I took the opportunity and why people should want to be at the company and come to work every day because we have a great technology that can make a huge difference for patients. But we've got to battle with CMS and all the reimbursement challenges. You've got to raise money you know, and get capital into the company, all the challenges that we have, but it's a really worthwhile effort. So we've talked a little bit about today's environment of cost control and taking costs out of the healthcare system. With Biome, you've got this incredible cutting-edge technology. comes with a pretty hefty price tag. How does that square with this new emphasis on, on taking costs out of the system. Yeah, so it's really a matter of looking at it and saying, what are the comorbidities that people with amputations suffer as a result of the prosthetics that they've been forced to walk on? The first thing is that they don't walk on them. They sit. So they get diabetes. They get hypertension. They get all kinds of issues associated with being sedentary and obesity. So that's the first thing you can fit. They get osteoarthritis. Interestingly, a number of patients I've seen... Um, at these prosthetics clinics, you can see they have a scar on their knee from the knee replacement. They're about to have a hip replacement because the, the good leg, so to speak, takes a lot of abuse over the years. So from a payer perspective, the, as a whole, the system is dealing with all of these side effects. Now, there's one mentality that says, well, if I don't you know, have to deal with that as a private insurer because it'll be on, on Medicare's responsibility before those things happen, maybe I won't pay for this ankle. But I think as, as the world is changing, everybody's bearing the brunt of everything. I think the mindset is changing that, like, if, if there's down, downward costs associated with, with a health problem, they're all going to be responsible for it and share in that in part, whether they're a Medicare Advantage player or they're a Blue Cross Blue Shield player. So we're trying to educate them on that and show them the clinical evidence that supports those impacts. It's easy to see, though, when you get somebody up walking that everybody agrees moving more is better for your overall health. And payers believe that, and so if you can demonstrate that, you can see they can already model how they're going to save money in the long term. So the Biome T2 won, I think in May, won a brand new code from CMS for reimbursement. Can you, it was before your time, but I know you've had a lot of experience with reimbursement issues. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of the challenge of that? And, and what would you tell a young entrepreneur with something very high-priced, very cutting-edge that's going to CMS and saying, hey, look, you've got to 
you got to pick up some of this cost. Yeah, you know, it's um, I mean, it's a it's a complex process, and I'm still learning this process in the durable medical equipment market because I've known it from the other side where I've had success with Medicare. I've been on the Medicare advisory committees as a physician, so I've had kind of both sides. But it's really about you just have to be planful. You have to recognize and accept that you have to get Medicare to pay for your product. And so then you've got to do what it's going to take to get them to pay for it. If you try to fight the system, you will lose. <laughs> you know, it's, there's no doubt you will lose. But you've got to work with them and, and be creative in how to get it resolved and, um, and have a plan that realistically looks at how long it will take to get it. And I think everybody is way too optimistic often on how quickly they'll get, they'll get codes, they'll get coverage, and they'll get adequate payment. And if you can plan for it well up front, um, so you capitalize the company appropriately, you'll get there. If you're way too optimistic, you'll end up running out of money and being out begging for it when you don't have reimbursement. So Carmichael, in your experience, if you had to rank when you're looking at a potential investment in a new company, where does that cost-cutting question fall into your calculus? How high on the list is it? Is it number one? Are you still looking more at, hey, this is an unmet need, this is a great solution to fill that need? Is that question even a part of the calculus anymore? That's a good question that you asked me. I would say it probably doesn't even fall in my top three, if I'm being honest. You know, with it, I realize that, I mean, there are certain set of things that almost feel as though they're a given, and so they don't factor in. in, into my criteria as I go through it. And I, I would say um, most of the people that I've worked with, and uh, as far, whether they're entrepreneurs that are out in the field or whether they're from academic institutions, uh, take for granted that you have got to get this thing within a, a, a regime of a cost that's reasonable and have a case around it. Uh, but it does factor in later as you start to do more diligence, right? I mean, we wouldn't do it, you know, at, at some point you'd, uh, I wouldn't pre-filter on the cost. Um, it typically doesn't pop up, but maybe then as you dig deeper and into uh, trying to figure out is this what you really want to back versus some other thing, or is this what you want to start versus some other thing, then those are the kind of factors that can weed things out. So, Dwayne, speaking of cutting-edge technologies, we spoke about this a little earlier, how far away are we from a truly artificial pancreas? Um, I do not think anyone in this room will live long enough to see it. I think it's, you know, it's great. It's terrific research. Just to give people a sense, you know, the theory behind an artificial pancreas is you're going to hook yourself up to a device. You're going to have some type of sensing, you know, you're going to have CGM sensing or some form of sensing that's going to monitor all your vital signs and it's going to give you insulin and give you, and, and basically give you glucagon to counteract that. So just the elements that don't exist today. CGM sensing is not accurate enough to deliver insulin by itself. All electromechanical devices fail. There is no stable glucagon stable for more than 24 hours, let alone for use in a pump. And if you think about our pump, you throw it away every three days, right? And everyone, for everyone, insulin, basically when you put insulin to the body, it reacts differently. So you put it in, there's a certain amount of time, you know, before it gets in and acts. So if you're gonna have a meal, typically, you know, depending on what your, you know, how sensitive your insulin sensitivity ratio is, you might give yourself insulin, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then there's a tail. It takes X amount of time to get out. So you, if you really want to do this, you want to have insulin 
that basically basically reacts more like your body's insulin, goes in almost instantaneously, has a very low tail. And if all that gets resolved, okay, then here's here's the here's the question, right? How does it know that you're eating a pound of pasta because you're going to go run the Boston Marathon? It doesn't. So it's basically going to load you up with insulin, and by mile two, you know, you're going to look like me running, right? You'll be out of breath, and you'll be on the sidelines. So I, I think our vision is, you know, and that's not to dismiss the whole thing. Like I said, the JDRF, everyone's throwing money on it. I think it's a little bit disingenuous because I, I just, like I said, I, I am highly skeptical. As a guy that produces these products, I would not sleep well at night thinking that this is running and the patient's not involved. Our vision is pretty simple. We're going to do all that stuff I described to you, and we're going to advise the patient. Um, right now, we're about to license a couple of predictive algorithms that will tell a diabetes patient, hopefully three hours in advance, that says, based on all the information we're processing, we think you're going to be here, you know, or in the simplest form, right? If you're a diabetes patient, what you really want is a cure. The second thing you want, for those who are not familiar with the disease, it regulates, it impacts every aspect of your life. You don't walk past and, you know, just grab a candy and pop it in your mouth. There, there is no aspect of your life where you're going to go for a run that you don't have to think about it. So the second thing a diabetes patient wants, they want less time thinking about it. So our, our design, you know, we filed a lot of IP around this. We want these predictive algorithms. They're going to basically tell you that you turn it on, think about a stoplight. You know, if you turn on your handheld and it's green, that means you have nothing to worry about for three hours. If you turn it on and it's yellow, it says, okay, we think, you know, in the hour and a half or two hours. Or if you turn it on in red, it basically says, you know, something's, something looks askew. And I think to take the patient out of this process means that electromechanical device is going to practice medicine. And, you know, we're not, you know, I, I know at Insulet, as long as I'm there, we're not going to try to take that leap. It's up to the patient. And if you find diabetes patients that are the most successful are the ones that are engaged with their, with their disease. Whether you like it or not, they are the only people that understand their body. They're the only people that understand they're going to run the Boston Marathon. And you're just not going to create it. It sounds good. There's a lot of money going to it. There's some incredible research coming out of it. But like I said, I don't think anyone here will live long enough to see the day where, that, where the FDA says, yeah, we're just going to turn you over to a device with the second most dangerous drug and let you go. So with those algorithms and that system, it sounds like there has to be a significant amount of patient involvement. The patient has to say, hey, look, I just ate a pound of pasta. I'm going to go for a run. Yeah, I think our job, and I believe our job, is to advise the patient based on everything we have, where they are at the moment, where they're going, and then the patient has the ability you know, to... to push the button, not push the button, say, yeah, okay, I, you know, it tells you that you ought to give yourself three units of insulin, but you know you're going for a run, so thank you very much, but no. And, and then you go off and do it. So, so like I said, I think the real, the real key is, you know, sans all this type of equipment, the patient has to be doing all this in the head. So we're going to take all the anxiety out of it. We're going to give you all the information, but we are not going to push the button. We are going to have the patient push the button because only they know what's going on with their body. So, Carmichael, you've enjoyed some significant investment from strategics, Medtronic being one of them. I'm interested in hearing how the involvement of a, a large strategic backer is different from a venture backer or an institutional investor. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I've had good results. I mean, you can have some bad results in strategics, but I, I've had largely good, good results. And, um, you know, I would say this. 
in a in a good uh, scenario with a strategic, hopefully you, when you look back, it's definitely not the money that made the difference. Hopefully, what you what you do is you see the fact that some of the biggest challenges, like you asked me earlier about the you know where does cost factor in, or you know so. You know, partnering with somebody, you know, having someone invested who really looks at themselves as a partner to really try to help you out and figure out how to navigate certain things so that the really unique thing that the little company does, which is probably some in, you know, in, innovation, something around technology, so maybe there's a group that's uniquely suited to advanced products that they can focus on that. Um, you can't get that from a, most times from a pure financial investor unless that's someone who happened to have been in that environment and decide to join a firm as an operating partner. Um, so how involved do these strategics tend to get? I mean, is it, are they putting somebody on the board? Are they saying, here's our distribution network, we can help you with that? We've got some expertise in reimbursement, we've got some ex expertise in regulatory, or is it more purely financial, or is it sort of a, a blend of those things? I think it's part, part of it is what you, um, you know, what you allow them to do and what you, how big of a risk, quote-unquote, risk you want to take in integrating them into, uh, you know, into your company. If you make it really clear that, you know, they're making an investment, they're an observer, show up every two, three months and, you know, call us every once in a while, I think they'll, they got better things to do most of the time unless it's something that they really, really want access to. Uh, so I can answer my own question. I, I, you know, my own case uh, cases in my companies, I get them very involved. Um, if I find that I, there's somebody that I can identify in the company who I can trust quite a bit, I actually will have them on the board, and then we'll just have to do the appropriate things uh, at certain segments of the board meetings to uh, have them excuse themselves. And as long as we're you know, open and have a good relationship, they get that. Um, you asked about you know, different elements and, you know, think about the elements in product development, whether it's around something around the engineering, the regulatory, or even in some cases, you know, on the clinical trial design. I mean, if you're, you know, some of the, I've, you know, I won't say what it is specifically, but I think in a couple of our, um, in a couple of my companies, they, the large company was somewhere between helpful to critical in the design of the clinical trials, including which sites you use, which doctors you use, and how you segment out the patients and how you interpret the data, right? Um, so, you know, which could be a dangerous thing to do as well if they're also a potential acquirer, right? <laughs> so you, you have got to, I don't, I don't want to advise everybody to go and run and do that, I would say. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a art to it. So what would your advice be to a would-be young medical device entrepreneur has a really hot idea for a huge unmet need and wants to start a company today in this environment facing really stiff regulatory challenge, reimbursement, ACOs, that whole comparative effectiveness arena. I first tell them to go and pick up some kryptonite <laughs> and determine whether or not they are paralyzed or not. If they are, then I would say, you are ready for this. You've got the Superman. No. Um, I mean, my answer is partly similar in a second. I, yeah, I, again, I come back to the fact that I think some of the best companies are created when you've got headwinds in front of you, and you know, most it filters out a whole group of people who really aren't built to go after things, and unless it's a great environment, I think the, some of the best entrepreneurs come in and tackle tough situations, unusual situations. So 
my general advice would be if they're really um, built for it and committed to do it, to go for it. And then the devil's in the details because it's, 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 it is difficult to raise money right now um, from, you know, from financial invest, pure financials, even strategics I'm talking about. It's a difficult thing. And like you mentioned, a regulatory environment and all the way to looking at reimbursement. Yeah, it's, a, it's a complex area. But it, that's also a barrier to entry if you can figure that out. Uh, and as long as you do it in a way that someone can't just follow you very easily, uh, I think there's a way you can turn it on its head. So very specifically, I'd go get advice. I'd tell you one thing for sure. If you're a young person who's, or you keep putting young on, on the topic, and if you are a 62-year-old who decided that you want to leave one industry and come over into this industry and do something, I would say there's a ton of really amazing people who um, would probably also help you be, be interested in your idea if you're really onto something and be willing to help you navigate. Chuck, how would you answer that question? You know, in some ways, it would be similar. I mean, I think if you're, if you really think you have a great idea and you run it by some people with some experience and you get excited telling the story and they get excited listening to it, you probably have something worthwhile. It won't be easy. Then you've got all the other challenges, but great ideas will find funding. They'll find their way to success in becoming part of healthcare. There's lots of great ideas that have taken a long time and a very circuitous path to become standards of care. So I think you just have to be willing to go out and fight the fight. But if you're really passionate about it, I think probably most of the people in this room do what we do, not because it's easy. We do it because we really feel like we're making a difference. And so that's why you do it. Um, and just because there's challenges, I think in any industry there's challenges. We all think that like coming up with a great you know, app is an easy road, and I'm sure for those people it's a hard industry as well. Um, so you, know, you have to really want to do it, and if you want to do it, you'll find a way, and people will get on board with you, and, and they'll fund the company, and they'll always own more than you want them to own, but you'll get it done. <laughs> True. Dwayne, what's your best advice? to the young okay. or old entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously they, they made the points and, and you really have to be dedicated. I, I would tell you in my personal experience, it took 50% longer and took twice as much money as any business plan we ever put together. So when you lay it all out and, you know, and you're going to go and mm -hmm. take out a second mortgage on your house, just whatever you come up with, just double it because <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it's funny. We, we dig out the old business plans. <laughs> And you look and I say, who the hell did this? So that was me. So, but it, it's been, you know, the opportunity's there. But, but you have to be smarter than, than you were five, six, seven, eight years ago. I, I think you really do want to. And you want to do your homework. You, you want to go down. You want to meet with the FDA. You want to understand really what the regulatory path is, assuming they can pinpoint it for you. And, and you want to understand what that challenge is. And like I said, I, I think it's, you know, that's twice as long and 50% more money than you ever would imagine. So.